0: Welcome to the New Perspectives Theatre Company podcast. My name is Federico Trigo, and I'm joined today by Artistic Director Melody Brooks, Resident Fight Director Ray Rodriguez, and later we'll be joined by Resident Production Designer Megan George. And today we're talking about the history of New Perspectives Theatre Company.
1: So we're celebrating our 25th anniversary on June 20th, and we actually will have 225 birthdays because this year is the 25th anniversary of our founding in 1991 and we were formally incorporated as a not-for-profit theatre company in June of 1992. So next year we can do it all over again. Mm-hmm. Great. Two birthdays. Two 225th. Two, yeah. two silver anniversaries. And um, we grew up in a space on 8th Avenue and 46th Street. It was called the Pelican Studio Theater. We had nothing to do with naming it. That's just what it was called. And we sublet it for a couple of years. Um, it was an incredible space. It was one of the best black box theaters in New York. And I've heard that from everybody. And many, many of the theater companies that are now prominent off-off-Broadway or even some you know on the verge of off-Broadway used our space, um, got their start there, did their first production there, rehearsed a show there. So we really were both at the heart of the theater district and at the heart of the off-off-broadway community way back then. And um, things have changed tremendously. We're still very much, uh, I don't know, not at the heart of, but I don't want to say an icon, although I sort of do want to say an icon of the (laughs) off-off-broadway theater uh, community in New York City. And uh, we were there for 15 years, Among the other notable things about the space was uh, Geraldine Page taught acting, that's where she taught her acting classes. Mm -hmm. And uh, I met her children in the first few years that we were there because they came back and did a few shows. Tony Torn did um, Richard III with, and I'm going to utterly blank on his name, but the actor who is now in Game of Thrones, he plays... um, Tyrion Lannister, Peter yeah, Dinklage. the small person, yeah, Peter, Peter Dinklage. Dink- yeah, Peter Dinklage, yeah. played oh. Richard III, yeah, it was. It, it, who knew, right? That's right. Yes, yeah, 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 yeah. and uh, um, Angelica to, uh, Page. Now she was Angelica Torn back then. Um, did Miss Julie? So we were. We had to rent that space out to be able to afford to have it, and then we acquired a fantastic rehearsal space across the hall, uh, and then they tore the building down in. 2006 so after we had been there for 15 years and put up a 46-story luxury high-rise tower Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, we were given the space that we're in now on 37th Street is a community space so it's very affordable of course it's nothing like the theater space that we had before we have a studio here and when we first moved here in May of 2006 but so now it's our 10th year here in this space. Yeah, I never imagined that we'd be performing anything here. Um, I really true. thought it would be... Rehearsals mm-hmm. and, and maybe some workshops or and things spend, like that. Or
2: spend this much time here.
1: <laughs> or because yes, we really we it's weren't originally supposed to. We thought yeah, we would have the space for two or three years. Two or three years tops, yeah. easily. And, and
0: then move into a larger space. No. We'll find we try to find another space. Try to space. find another
1: space because yeah. this was a uh, uh, supposed to have a gut rehab mm-hmm. and that when we were given it. Um, and that's of course been delayed. Um, our landlord is a non profit development company that owns a gazillion building buildings in um, Hell's Kitchen affordable housing, community spaces, supportive housing, that sort of thing. So, it's just ended up that we got lucky enough to be here for 10 years. Yeah. And
0: how did you get into that arrangement with the
1: Cuz it's my personal landlord. Oh. I've been living in House Kitchen since 1979, so I guess I will date myself. <laughs> in, when I came here for college and um it really was House Kitchen back then. Yeah. And um we're still in House Kitchen. I didn't realize this. I was in the Clinton Park on 53rd and 11th, which is where I live. And uh, there's a sign up there about the history and how this used to be because it's DeWitt Clinton Park and how it gave its name to the to the area but they defined it as also as Hell's Kitchen as going between 34th Street Mm -hmm. and 57th Street uh, from the river to 8th Avenue so I didn't think we were still in Hell's Kitchen but indeed we very much are so we've never left Hell's Kitchen Mm -hmm. I've ever rarely left Hell's Kitchen in (laughs) however many years it is since 1979 Um, so who's
0: the real daredevil exactly (laughs) right yeah (laughs) it is funny
1: yes it is true it is true (laughs) so i uh when when that space was being torn down because our landlord is involved in our local community board Mm -hmm. and the land use committee and all the development that goes on um we went to him and asked if they had anything and this space had just been vacated by an after-school program which is why we have all these wonderful you know you know, Starfish right. and submarine drawings and and things in the in our back patio and we and it came with a patio so mm-hmm. how could we say no uh, but then when we went to um, rent a space to do just our our small voices from the edge festival one year mm-hmm. two thousand and seven I think it was and discovered that we would pay a thousand dollars for four days in a space no bigger than ours it was better equipped than ours we didn't have any theater equipment in here at the time. Mm-hmm. So that's when we thought, well, maybe this wasn't such a bad place to perform in after all. Um, and we've done, as you've been a part of, as, as one of our company members. Not quite so long time, but a significant amount of time, 2009. 2009. Yeah. yeah,
2: yeah.
1: Um, So doing sort of uh, productions that have a, a suggested set or you know, lights or doing what we can with that. And, and our focus changed to a lot more developmental work. Because in the old space we did big Shakespeare productions, a wow. yes, uh, cl- lot more classical yes, plays. Um, that's how Ray actually joined mm-hmm. the company in 1999 for our production of Othello, oh. which Austin Pendleton said was the best production of Othello he'd ever seen in his entire life. Yes. so he loved. And them he all. had seen them all. He loved my Rodrigo. Yeah. I still remember right. him saying that to me
2: afterwards.
1: Um, yeah. So, yes, we did a lot of great work at that space, and it's it's. Um, It was interesting when we lost the space because it was was a struggle to pay for it and to keep things going. Um, And so there was a moment of what do we do now? Do we keep going Mm -hmm. or do we fold our tent and say, okay, we did that for 15 years. And I think if we had not been given this space, um, I don't know that I could have kept it going because it is very, very, very hard. To uh, run an off-off a private
2: company. Yeah, just the other the other companies that were in the building, um, how much heart, how much hardship they had to try and you know procure space. And well, most of them are gone. Stay. They're not. Most they don't are. exist. Yeah,
1: exactly. Creative Place is not running anymore. Exactly. Marsha Marcia who was underneath mm-hmm. us. Uh, really. Yeah. yeah her, yes. She's not. She's not having a company anymore. Mm-hmm. Oh, the crazy people on the second floor? I'm just yeah, blanking on what not their ensemble, names were. Not ensemble. No, 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 they were... No, no, it was... Uh, the Weirdos. Theater Studio Ensemble? Yeah, Theater Studio, yes. I guess I shouldn't but be saying, you know, well, casting aspersions on a public... No, uh, the eccentric yeah. owners of the space. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but it was very interesting. We can start. I, 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 I really, can start some beef. Yeah. <laughs> I really go to that, to that area now, and when I do, it's just shocking. Everything's it's, gone. There's
2: nothing. There's nothing.
1: And it was a serious community. I mean... We could leave our keys downstairs with the deli mm-hmm. for people, like if, if there was a renter or something coming and they needed to be able to get in, we could leave the keys at the deli. Yeah, That's how that's how neighborhoodly it was. Um, we also still had prostitutes on the street corner. We were we held up at gunpoint a couple of times in the space. Um, this was really? really? In the space? In yeah, our that space, must have been yeah. Er-
2: that must have been before me. That was, that yeah, was it was,
1: before. Um, we were sharing the space when I first took it over uh, with another group... Um, and they were having a rehearsal, and the two guys came in with stockings over their head, and they thought that they were two of their actors making having <laughs> making a joke, and they had guns. Um, and they made everybody lie on the floor. They took all their wallets. Took, you know, they took a bunch of
2: actors' wallets. Wow. Yeah, I know. Yeah. Could, Could, <laughs> right. <laughs> Burger King Why's must have been lunch? really
1: good that night. <laughs> they took yeah. their
2: equity card.
0: Yeah.
1: <laughs> And you know we had a, a, a back door in the office, and if you didn't lock that door, and you were in the mm-hmm. theater space rehearsing, one time my wallet was stolen. Some guy followed me from the elevator. I went in the back door. I didn't lock it behind me, and a little while later, I went into my go in my purse and get my wallet, and it was gone. I, and I I was in the theater. I remember that. Yeah, and yeah, it, yeah, was, yeah. Uh, it was it uh, was I was like, wait a minute, and there we had a few. You know, it was still a it was still a. a not a uh, it was I wasn't gonna say it was a, not a fun neighborhood but of course it was a terribly fun neighborhood um, way more fun than it is now mm-hmm. I mean the neighborhood is dead I, you, nothing stays open despite, after eleven but and again, you know,
2: despite all of that you know and, and really it was so rare that, the, that those things happened again still had such the neighborhood feeling yeah. Yeah. And everything across the street too. Right, the delis across the, the street. Across the
1: street. Was the bar on the corner just in our building um, on mm-hmm. the ground floor? Total theater bar. It had been there forever. It's where all the theater, the stage hands uh, mm-hmm. would go. Um, yeah, yeah. They didn't go and anywhere. there was all several restaurants on Theater Row, 40, uh, Restaurant Row on Forty Sixth Street. Yeah, um, that are now no longer there. I mean, it's that, you, you can't hotel, afford to go. Yeah,
2: hotel that was uh, across um, the street that's now. Like, yeah. It became a parking lot, then it became a chaos, I don't know what it is now, yeah. I
1: have no idea what yeah. it is now. So, uh, and so when we moved over here on 37th Street, there was nothing. I mean, we, we have gates all over our windows and doors, uh, which I was just thinking it's time to open all the gates now. I was
0: just thinking that on the way yeah. here. Because,
1: yeah. because, you know, when I could sit at my desk when we first moved here and look all the way up 10th Avenue. And there's now a, a high-rise right in front of us. There's yeah. one on the on the opposite corner. There's a new building over here. I mean, we're we right. yeah. surrounded. Um, and here we are. I mean, it, I've never it's, felt quite so it's, tiny yeah. as I do here. Well, I,
2: I told you, I, I, I happen to be, a friend of mine was doing a performance for the French Festival, and a friend of hers lives in the building. That's right there. And he's been there since it opened. And it's off the balcony, right up on the, on right the, the sixth, seventh floor. Seventh up the seventh floor, and I looked over when I was there and I just looked down at the theater and went, Wow, it's like this tiny little place that the holdout, the last holdout, it's like the last holdout, and, and everything that has just gotten so and still, and still, because it's incredible to just stand there, stand up there, and just see how much the entire area has changed, and yet there's new perspectives just sitting there. Right.
1: And it's so interesting, too, because in regard to our mission and why we were founded in the first place and what it was that we were attempting to do. Um, that's one of the reasons why we're still so tiny is because nobody, there is no money to support what it is that we do. And uh,
0: for those who don't know what our mission statement is and what we're about, what is our mission?
1: So our official mission is that we are a a company founded to uh, use theater as an agent of positive social change, to develop new works for the stage with an emphasis on plays by women and writers of color, to uh, produce classical plays with a look at how they have an impact, a continuing impact on our lives and work in the modern world, and to extend the benefits of theater to communities in need, especially young people. Um, and so we had a three pronged approach when we started uh doing the development of new plays our inaugural season in 92 93 was three original plays one was a lesbian fairy tale one was a reversed reverse ethnic sort of it was called john brown but it was about a black cop who had killed a white
3: uh
1: criminal yeah and uh then, so sort of looking at it from the other side, and the third play was called "Behind the Curtain," which was written by an Iranian American woman who, and it's about an Iranian martyr, a woman in the late nineteenth century who was working for religious reform and women's rights in Iran in the nineteenth century. So we decided that we would do, we wanted to make a big splash, and what could we do differently? And we did them in rep. So our first, very first inaugural thing that we did, was those three play, plays in rep in the fall of 1992, and uh, so and we we when we uh, were in, formally incorporated, we had auditions and to have we wanted to have a standing company. That was the idea, and we had 30 people that we selected, and we had some of everybody, old, young, different ethnicities, uh, some you know people with disabilities, and uh, so we cast those three plays in rep from that group, and then uh, in the spring, so what we thought we would do was original plays in the fall, and we'd do a classical play in the spring, and then maybe something else. We hadn't really quite figured that out. But we did Miss Julie in the spring of 93, and we changed the um, the background of the characters to be Latino, um, so that in the original script, it is the Jean, the, uh, the valet's accent that he speaks with an upper class accent that separates him from his fellow servants Um, and yet he is still a servant Mm -hmm. and so looking at those issues of class and it just happened to coincide with a big scandal at the time which was uh, Clinton had nominated um, I think her name was Kimba Wood uh, to be on the Supreme Court Mm -hmm. and it was discovered that she had a Mexican uh, housekeeper who was in the country illegally. She was not paying Social Security for her right. It all, right. This all came yeah. out. And that. so this idea of the fact that we were doing a play that was 100 years old that was looking at the quality of life for the serving class, uh, very much dealing with, you know, and the upper class, you know, whatever was going on with them, that it had never really gone away. And the idea that there were so many, in particular uh, Mexican and South Americans, uh, living in the United States here illegally but being employed by very wealthy people and they were treating them basically as slaves mm-hmm. so um it was a really great production so what we did was that uh had the in the in the play there's the two characters and then there's a, a a cook and she has a few lines and so we translated those lines into spanish and so that whenever she would talk to Jean, he would answer her in english but in the at the end of the play you know after the tragedy and Miss Julie's dead when she comes and confronts him he talks to her back he talks to her in Spanish so uh, yeah um, it was a good it was really a good production and you know we were just starting out and we it, we didn't a lot of people didn't see it but the person that designed the set and lights for us um, Clifton Taylor was his name and he was at the time the resident lighting designer for I think it was the Philadelphia Opera Company it was some company in Philadelphia and he said, if you were doing this in Philadelphia, it would be the talk of the town. Yeah. And that's sort of like the story of our 25 years, is that the work that we do, and, and uh, because it's also, the company was founded with a real focus on the craft of theater, uh, doing the best quality work that we could do. We had weekly workshops for the acting company, so that we could all develop an ensemble, approach to the work. Um, And then in 94 we did our first production of Macbeth which was and we did Admissions which was a new play uh, that Austin Pendleton was directing. And so that's how we met Austin Pendleton who's been a good friend to us for years. And uh, that was named by Backstage as one of the 10 best plays of the year in 94. Uh, We also did the I can't remember if it was in 94. We started our Women's Work project in 94 because one of the things that I realized in the first year when we did the three original plays in rap was that you can't put in... And then we did a, another full-length play, and it was a female playwright, And but we had a, already had a production date for it, which was September of 94, that you can't really put a date on a play that hasn't been written yet. Mm-hmm. And so, <laughs> so we had to... Uh, I mean, we did do, end up doing that production, but it wasn't as good as it should have been. And so, when we started the women's work project, it was that we would take one or two writers in as residents and work on developing their scripts, give them a, a assign them to a director dramaturg, and develop that script, and then we could produce it. So the development would be much more um, proscribed. Mm -hmm. So that we would say, here's what you've got, here's what it needs, make these rewrites, make these changes, and we could do in-house readings and sort of build it up, so that it would then be ready to be produced. And so that's why the mission of the Women's Work Project has always been to bring scripts to production quality. Not to stage reading quality or uh, any other thing, but to really really do that fine-tuning in the development of the script. Because so much of what happens, and then and now still, is that scripts are written in off-off-Broadway and they get produced before they're really ready to be produced. And so what happens is is that the directors and the playwrights are trying to fix it in the four-week rehearsal process, although now Equity gives you five weeks for rehearsal, right? So you're trying to fix the play and direct it to be um, be ready for an audience, and it's just a very, very hard thing to do. You can't really do that all at the same time. Um, So... You know, we, we, we did a lot over there. I mean, there's other things that I could mention. I don't know. Um, Ray joined us in 1999, as we said, for Othello. Right. Um, My introduction with, uh, was in... Um, was Macbeth, um previous... But you weren't in it. No, I know. I know, but I, I saw it. Oh, you saw it, mm-hmm. yeah. So, and the other great thing about that theater space, theater because theater. not only was it a great big black box theater, but we had height. And so we wow. could really... Yeah create sets that were multi-leveled, was right? Was 18? 18? No, I don't remember what it was. It was, it was uh, but hard. we also had, and we had a lighting grid and we had, you know, so and we had built-in platforms on either side of the space so that for Make a Bath we, we really built, um, I mean, you know, built the whole thing. And the other thing we could do there, which we did a lot for, is, uh, we did it for both um, Classical plays as well as original plays uh, that we would include the audience in the set, right? So that in the audience, because it is, it's another part of our mission is that we never pretend the audience isn't there. Oftentimes that means direct address. Certainly with Shakespeare it does, um, but it but it can mean you know that when the audience comes in, if the, if if the set of the play is a living room, that the audience is actually sitting in the living room that we that we built a set around them so that it was a, an environmental um, experience I mean in a way I mean I think we were really really ahead of our time uh, because people didn't quite know what to do with it and certainly with our multiracial, colorblind casting um, 25 years ago yeah. I mean I do remember our first Shakespeare production in 94 was uh, The Two Gentlemen of Verona and it was I mean we had everybody in there and there was no we didn't like match people up so it wasn't like some at the time Is I think the most what people had done was, like if they were doing Romeo and Juliet, it would be like the Capulets would be black and the um, Montagues would be white. But we didn't matter. So we had a black Duke and his daughter was white and we reverse gendered some of the other roles. Um, and so people that came to say, see it, it was interesting to me, their their reaction these were friends of mine and people I'd known, um, not necessarily theater people uh, they said at first they spent about 10 minutes trying to figure out what it meant, like the fact that characters (laughs) were of a certain color or ethnicity or gender, that there was some meaning behind it. Uh And when they realized that that wasn't the case and they could just let go of their preconceived ideas, that they could then just look at the people as people, that these actors were just those characters and they were just people. And that was truly the goal And when we were very, very successful with it. Even now, I I don't see a lot of... um, Companies that have the same percentage of diversity that we did, because we always uh, insisted that we no, that, that that the cast with large cast shows at least fifty percent needed to be non-white. Yeah. Um, so, uh, so no one, you know, we couldn't apply for funding as a woman theater company. We couldn't apply for it as a particular ethnic company because we were really serving, you know, all of the the voices that were that were going unheard by and large. And I think for it's interesting to me that young artists today can't imagine that this wasn't always the case, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, that you see a lot more diversity in casting. Mm-hmm. You see it, even though there are constant complaints about, uh, yeah. about it, right, you know? But the, <laughs> so the, the, the thing is, yeah. is that at least it's, at least it's, at least it's there, exactly. it's, it's much, right? Exactly. And so, so yeah. uh, the idea that it should be that way is, is the new thing, right? because right. we were doing it and gradually more people did it but, um, but not again, never to the degree that we still do. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, I still don't
2: think there are any theater companies out there at least on the um, you know at this level that are even make, still making that attempt. I think those who are making an attempt at it the percentage is maybe 20 or 30 percent of, you know.
1: It might cast. be. I, I think but that there are, I think that in Off Off Broadway and certainly in the downtown theaters, that it is a, it is the norm now.
4: Mm-hmm. That
1: no one expects that they will have an all-white cast, right? Right. Uh, but it's still not the norm to have, just a completely integrated mix of people doing it. I mean, one company that's doing it now, interestingly, is the Classical Theater of Harlem, and they started out as a as an all Black company doing classical plays with African American actors. So they have now begun to mix it up, and they have they really do have a, a great level of diversity in what they're doing. But their focus is, you know, l- legitimately an African American theater company. Mm hmm. And. Uh, uh, but I, you know, it, I, I'm still shocked when I get postcards or emails or flyers for things that are off-Broadway and on-Broadway, uh, and it's an all-white cast. And, 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 and the idea that because it's, oh, it's a classical play, or because I, I can't remember what the one was I just saw, and it's set uh, somewhere, you know, but it's like a 19th century play, and the idea that you must have an all-white cast for that... Is just ridiculous. Yeah. I mean, it is. For a 19th
2: century it, play? Wow. It doesn't
1: matter. I'm just saying. It's like most people don't have a problem doing uh, multiracial or, gen- or non traditional, you know, with genders casting if we're talking about a classical play, if we're talking about Shakespeare or the Greeks or whatever. Right. Right? Because people tend to look at those as just stories. Mm. And so you can people them however you want, with, with, however you want to tell that story. But if we're talking about a play, like if it's a Shaw play, mm-hmm. or maybe Shaw might even be, some people would be more adventurous with that. But if it's a play set in a particular time and place, then the, the, most people feel that you have to cast it accordingly. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's the thing that I find most bizarre. And also the idea that uh, that there weren't people of color all over the world for thousands of years you know that that's part of our history that we're just not taught um, and that is beginning to be put out there a little bit more that there were plenty of black people in England in the 16th and 17th centuries Mm -hmm. you know were they majority no but they existed and they were there Mm -hmm. um so it's just it's so interesting to see how in one some ways there's been tremendous progress in that area but in other ways the thinking behind it I think is still very Mm Very um, undeveloped. Undeveloped. Because we, you just still see it so much in particular kinds of plays that, that people think it has to be cast. Yeah, limited thinking about mm-hmm. how, how to cast it.
0: And do you think that's an age issue? Maybe old, an older generation still wants to uh, restrict themselves in that way?
1: No, I don't think it has. I don't think it's a generational thing. Um, I think it has to do partly with commercial theater, that commercial producers, and there's a lot of young commercial produce, producers um, think it has think it has to be that way. But I also think that it is, you know, it, it goes to a much larger discussion of what how we deal with race issues in this country. I hate to say race because there's no such thing as race and we all know that, and it's been proven, we are all of one race, so we can talk about ethnicity or, you know. But I was just having a conversation with one of our um, comedy members, I won't name her name, we had dinner the other night, and she is African-American, and about the idea of a lot of the things that have been percolating that haven't percolated before, uh, but the way in which white people... Because we do have these discussions at New Perspectives about how white people behave and, you know, all that (laughs) stuff. Um, Her interpretation of what people meant when they said certain things or the fact that there was an assumption that that... It's interesting, and see if I can describe this properly, that there is a a feeling among some white people... Mm -hmm certainly in the middle class and I think we're seeing this in you know the Trump phenomenon to a ridiculously insane degree but the idea that the, the there's a there is a level playing field now that all those problems have been fixed there's no discrimination because it's illegal to discriminate to discriminate and there's no thought given to the fact that many many people of color their schools they're in schools that have no money, they're in neighborhoods, you know, all of these things. If we look institutional. At the, we look at the, yes, the institutional, institutional racism. racism. We look at the statistics on, you know, that a black college graduate has an equal chance of getting a job as a white high school graduate, um, you know, for certain kinds of positions, yes.
0: Mm-hmm. And so... Uh, and there's also the study that showed um, uh, employers are more likely to reject someone if they have an ethnic-sounding name. Just yes, yes, right. Just from their resume, right. Yeah, yeah. yeah.
1: And so th- so it's it's a very, very deep thing about, you know, and again, our mission in originally but with the inclusion, and we also have this little catchphrase, which I have to thank my sister for, because she came up with it when I was writing the mission statement, I knew we needed a button on the end of it. And it is, our aim is not to exclude, but to cast a wider net. Mm. Uh, because if theater is in its nature, supposed to be either reflecting back to a society from which it came or teaching us. It has to have all the voices because if all you ever have is, you know, a single voice, and for years it was white male playwrights, so even that was was skewed in terms of how we think about things. But I think in terms of what people want to do with casting um, for a particular place, number one is people work with people they know. So it is the problem across the board. It's the problem for women's work, right? That for years, if you were a white male playwright and you were successful, you would continue to work at the same theater companies. And if you were developing a new play, there was the place that you always went to, whether it was La Jolla or, you know, wherever, that your play would be developed. And and so for women to break into that meant that they had to take a real risk because they didn't know what they were getting. And it's the same with... Uh, if you're going to start a new theater company, or even the companies that have been around, there are some off-off Broadway companies that have been around as long as we have. Uh, they are a, a higher than us in terms of their budget status because they do a little bit more, I think, conventional um, work. But many of those companies were founded with a group of people that either went to a, they came out of college together, mm-hmm. or they went to an acting class together, or whatever. Mm-hmm. And so they, they, that's, they stick with what they know, and it doesn't occur to them. I can't tell you how many times, when we had our old space, I and mean, I still hear it occasionally, but because we had so many theater companies working in our space, many of them doing a lot of Shakespeare and classical theater, and with all white casts, and I, I over and over again people would say, oh, I would love to work with some actors of color. I just don't know any. And it's like, well, uh, or people are you would say, the community? <coughs> "Well, I know," but it shows you how yeah. segregated we still really are, right? Mm-hmm. And so, or the other thing would be that they would say that they would, in their audition notices, they would put the, you know, then a kind of obligatory, you know, all races, all people need apply, and that and that um, actors either wouldn't audition for them, <coughs> or if they offered them the role, they wouldn't take it. And and there's many reasons for that. One is that at that time and I think it's still very much the case, if you have actors of color who are good actors and working for pay, there is no incentive for them to come and do your showcase mm-hmm. unless it's a, a damn good role and they know they're gonna be there's gonna be publicity and all of that behind it. Yeah. Also there's there is a trust factor and that is that you can't just one day decide Oh, we want to do multiracial casting, so come and play with us, come and work with us, right? We built it into our mission statement. So so it's foundational and we have lived up to that for twenty five years. So actors of color coming here don't have to wonder if they are a token, right? Or don't have to wonder why they're being cast or that or or that they're not being cast in the in the obvious role. They're not playing the servant. Um uh, a dear dear friend Melissa Maxwell who just had a terrible tragedy happen to her today who is African-American and graduated from um, I'm gonna blanket and I think Boston University and she talked about being there uh, um, in her in her senior year in, in the theater program there and the, the young woman directing who was white wanted was doing a production of Cat on a Hot Tin Roof and it had been like the third play in a row in which there was no particular roles written for uh, black actors. And so the students complained. And the, this director, who decided that she would accommodate them, called them into audition for servants and, and wanted them to improvise picking cotton and singing spirituals Yes, wow and this was and this was in the in the late 80s, right so mm-hmm. so this was that was the the idea behind it and so, so what I'm saying is that so, so that it's not that people think the older generation thinks it has to be that way, mm-hmm. but that it is um, people who, who want to go what they think is authentic uh, or why why they think it's it has to be that way I mean it's the same problem that we have I have with Broadway and all the revivals I mean, if we're just gonna recreate everything, I mean, think about what our classics now. They weren't classics then.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: They were the cutting edge of what theater practitioners were putting out into the world to engage in, in serious issues, right? right. Um, and so if, all, if people think that to redo those plays you just have to redo them the way they were, they've been always done, then, then what's the point, right. really? Um, yeah. so,
0: and how do you adapt it to the community today.
1: You don't even have to adapt it. Well, I mean, really. Look, <laughs> well, one of the greatest um, <clears throat> examples of it was uh, uh, the, the cat on a hot tin roof that they recently mm-hmm. did with the all-black cast, right? Yeah. Now, they were able to get the rights from the estate to do the original script, which had a lot more cursing in it, right? Mm-hmm. Because when it was mm-hmm, done on Broadway, yeah, they had to edit oh, it. Yeah. They had to they cut the cursing it. out of it. Oh. Mm-hmm. And so... Uh, I think they made a you didn't the the, the design for the, that show was not very good because you had no idea what year it was supposed to be and somewhere buried in the playbill it said like 1980s because again there you go even with a, with a black production team they couldn't envision That's setting right. it in the 50s and, the, and, a, and a black family owning it they had to move it into the 80s um, but it was so much more authentic the language of the play with African American voices right because you think of Elizabeth Taylor and Paul Newman in their god-awful southern accents in the movie, right? It's so inauthentic, and and it was so grounded and so, so powerful, and it was the same play. I mean, it's not like it was adapted... To make it be a play for a black family. Um, well, it was adapted with the original <laughs> script. <laughs> so.
2: Well, that wasn't <laughs> adapted,
1: I'm just saying. No, but it was, I'm not saying that it, because of the cursing, it fit better in the in the, It didn't matter, I'm just saying it was a better script. A script. But, but just the language, you know, worked so much better. Um, and uh, uh, so the idea that we have to sort of conform to what we think the time period was all about. Mm-hmm. Uh, why? Because um, Tennessee Williams had a statement that he was making with that play, right? which had nothing to do with class or anything else. It had solely to do with the character of Brick, right? and the, the questionable sexuality and, and what and, 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 and Big Daddy and that you know, the sort of macho male influence and all that. Do we need to see that play? exactly with that point again today i don't think so but i think there's many other uh, messages embedded in there just like there is with any classical play right if it's a good play and it lasts it means because it's got universal human truths and many many things in which we can investigate and so that's the just thing i just don't understand why people feel the need to just replicate you know what's been done before i'm sure i'm going to get lots of uh if anybody listens to our podcast, no, they do But you know, we've been accused of not quite so much anymore. But I'll tell you, in our early days, and even even until coming here, uh, of, of reverse racism and mm-hmm. male playwrights accusing us of, um, you know, uh, what's the word, discrimination against mm-hmm. them. And and my answer has always been, you know, our choice to do this is about access. That there are plenty of places that a white male playwright. Who's actually also already been produced because it came from the guys who had been produced elsewhere.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, they have access. There are millions of places where they can go and get their plays produced. Yeah, right. But women and writers of color, not so much. Right? That that is actually changing for the writers of color. I think. Um, I'm
0: surprised because I have performed in plays here by male playwrights. So yeah. Just, well,
1: yes, I know. Of yeah. course. But it's that sense of entitlement, right? That we said they wanted to submit their play would be considered and be, no. The stuff that you've seen here performed by male playwrights has been by our playwrights that we have a relationship with Mm -hmm. and that we, you know, develop. And they've been few and far between, right? Um, Two of them that you did, I think that's it in the last couple of years. Uh, Richard Wentz and Richard Viterian. They're both named Richard, so there must Mm -hmm. be something in that. Um, But yeah. And what? Rafi's plays. Rafi. Rafi, sorry. Yeah, yeah. Oh, right, I forgot you were in that. Yeah. Um, so yes, yes, but that's in the Voices from the Edge, the African-American um, playwrights, and that doesn't have a gender. They can be male or female if they're mm-hmm. in Voices from the Edge. But, um, so, yeah, I just totally lost my train of thought. So it's your turn to talk, Ray. <laughs> how do I even follow that? <laughs> well, how how'd, you, many,
0: how'd you get... We know that you came in with... Uh, you saw Macbeth... Mm-hmm. And then you jumped in with Othello. So what what well, is this experience? I actually,
2: I actually was asked to come. Um, uh, it was just a situation of, of work I, I would have been on earlier with that production of, of Macbeth. I'm trying to remember which year it was. 97. Cause 97, right, because I had just started We've working. done
1: Macbeth a million times, yeah. and we'll do it again. Yes. I was yeah. a part of one production. Yeah. Yeah? Yeah. Yeah, yeah.
2: yeah. So, um, yeah uh, needed a Banquo as a matter of fact. It's not Banquo, needed I don't remember. Yes, it was Banquo, right. Oh um, yeah, My right. good friend, uh, uh, David Dean Hastings, who was uh, playing... Uh, he was our fight
1: director. He was the very director. first fight director yeah. that we ever had in 1995 in our first production of Macbeth and mm-hmm. we really learned the value of having a fight director. Yeah.
2: So anyway, um, I, so was, I wasn't. I wasn't able to to do the uh, that production of Macbeth, um, uh, but I came and auditioned for Othello. Um, not for Othello, I auditioned for Rodrigo in Othello, <laughs> and that was this. I believe it was was it this? That was December of ninety eight.
0: Right, right, because we right
1: performed in the spring of exactly.
2: Um, yeah, and and actually, that was for me. Uh, I, I, actually, it, it, truthfully it was the first time I actually, in my professional career, was actually doing a, a Shakespeare show here in, in the city. Huh. I had never done one before. Um, uh, by choice. <laughs> because most of the time the ones, all the productions that I always went to go see either either left me asleep or um, I just find, why, why? Why, why is this on stage? I don't, you know, it's it's awful. Um, so I was looking forward to the challenge of, of working with, with Melody, uh, only because I was so intrigued with the way that Macbeth was actually done. Mm. Um, and I believe you had already done Richard.
1: Uh, yes, we had in Austin. 97 with Austin. Yeah, right, Richard so the I, saw,
2: I saw both those productions right. and was blown away by the by the casting, mm-hmm. by the, the production values. By, it was just, everything was just like, well, if I'm going to do Shakespeare, I want to do it here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then seriously, that's what it was. So I, I still remember I had I had such a great time um, starting that uh, uh, rehearsal process with Mel, mm-hmm. and, and having the one-on-ones uh, that we had, talking about Rodrigo, and what my thoughts were regarding his character and so uh. on, and some, some, of the, some of the fun stuff that that production, um, and it's funny because people who, who uh, I either haven't seen before or people who I've met uh, that have actually seen that production can still remember some of the things that I apparently had done for wow. that, that show. That's a great so, Yeah,
1: and we actually and, did uh, manage to make Othello a multiracial cast, believe right. it or not. Um, yeah. Yeah, yeah, we said it. We made it a modern uh, setting so that it was in the the modern military, mm-hmm. and so we were able to um, uh, to add in the in the in the generals in the beginning and Bianca uh, and uh, the clown. You know, so we were really able to do that. But I want to. I have to really give credit when you talk about. i would forgotten about the individual sessions that Amanda Maud, who is our associate artistic director, when she's in town, she lives a lot of... <laughs> But we did a string of shows together when she was still here in New York. And really, uh, I have to credit her with, which, which being our verse nurse, um, but that was, yeah. And so when we would really learning the, the um, working with the first folio and a lot of the elements of working with the verse, that are at the time were you know sort of old hat in England, but in New York, all all anybody knew was iambic pentameter. Really? They knew nothing else, um, and so we were really able to. I think that was probably one of the best, not just best productions, but also best rehearsal period and, and cast, because we just. We had it cast that could come to every rehearsal. We didn't have to scramble to you know squeeze people here and there. Um, we had Amanda; she played Amelia brilliantly, and uh, but also that we were able to do this verse work with everybody, the text work, and then and then you know put it on its feet. Um, and fantastic fight direction um, by David Hastings, who played Cassius, uh, and it was a really quite a crew, and the same, almost not the same, but many of the same people were in, they'd been in Macbeth in 90, the 97 Macbeth, um, and then it, the following year we did Julius Caesar, uh, and David played Mark Antony in that one. Um, that was a much more difficult production. It, really interesting how these things worked out. It was still a very good production. Uh, we lucked out with the guy who was designing it, who was also doing a McDonald's or a Burger King commercial at the time. So he kind of padded his budget for them, oh. um, and we, we, uh Do we want to admit that? Yeah, yeah. Well, we don't. We're not saying who. We're not naming uh, yeah. names. Um, <laughs> well, I'm sure they could. Yeah. That. Uh, <laughs> so we set it in uh, 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 the '50s, the, the whole Murder Inc. period. You know, it's another thing that's a hallmark of the work that we do. And we do it in classical plays, and we do it in. Um, you know, I guess in 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 plays that we're developing, it's a considered part of the dramaturgy, right? Which is, what is this world? And again, the idea that if we're going to look at a classical play and say, what does it have to say to us today? That one of the things I always thought about, you know, the whole Julius Caesar um, issue in, in the historical setting was that um, Caesar had a child with Cleopatra. So he had no heir, Octavian was his wife's nephew, and so for him to come back to Rome, and he brought uh, Cleopatra to Rome with him, and uh, and so suddenly this idea that, you know, that that kid might be on the throne, and, and and the issues in the play of Brutus contemplating, oh, could we just kill Caesar, and then we'll have our republic and things will be fine. So the, uh, the idea that if you, whenever you use violence, to achieve a political end, you will only get violence as a as a result of that, right? And so it made me look for a, a time period where we could where we could explore that. And I looked at Murder Inc. Uh, in the '50s with the Mafia. That there was a fringe element within the Mafia that was just murdering everybody. It was their preferred answer for everything. And it got so bad, and they they the Mafia controlled the port, right? And uh, with the longshoremen, and that business left New York, you know, in droves and went to LA and to um, Norfolk. And the port of New York has never recovered oh, wow. yeah. the, the money, never recovered the business. Um, and so we set it in the 50s and did a, a whole little prologue like tableau thing. Uh, over the the fight with Pompey and then Cleopatra and leading up to the beginning of the play and it was set in a warehouse and so that was the 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 beauty of this person having an extra budget to create the warehouse effect and that we we sat the audience like in a almost like a boxing ring around it and let it all happen there so so it was still a really a, a great production but um but it was a little more difficult to achieve, and that's—I I really miss—we haven't done a big Shakespeare production in a long yeah. time, where we could have yeah. real elements, real set, real, and really have a, a, a team. I've been—I've been hankering for that for a while. So,
0: speaking of set and elements, yes, we were just joined with Megan. And Megan, can you, um, you know, I tell can't us talk
4: about that show. That no, was no, me. Me no, no, you can't.
0: Can you introduce yourself and yeah, uh, what you do here. I'm
4: Megan George, and I am the resident. Designer and and um, I do costume
1: and set design, projection design, graphic design, <laughs> slide
0: design, design. Whatever these. She's our
1: she's our uber designer. Yeah,
0: yeah. that's a
1: great yeah. title. Uber yeah. yeah, she's our design. Czar. A lot of pressure. You she's put that our on design. Yeah. <laughs> and Megan, the first show you did with us was in two thousand, so we were just up to ninety nine. With um, Othello, mm-hmm. and, uh, and we're going back. back yeah, to we're the going beginning. back. We're going back. We went way back. Yeah. To the, beginning. the first show I did was
4: um, um, Good People. Good People in mm-hmm. two thousand, the spring of two thousand. Well, I
1: thought that was wow. Was it two thousand? I thought it was two thousand and one. No, it was two thousand. We could go look on the wall in our gallery two, it was of shows. I'm pretty sure it was two thousand. Yeah, It was two thousand. Yeah. yeah, and. Uh, Megan had been recommended. Oh, she came with the director. Yeah, through John yeah. Stever. Yeah, and that was who- in Voices from the Edge and a new play by L. Trey Wilson. And um, and Melissa Maxwell, whom we just mentioned earlier, was that was her first uh, production with us.
4: Yes, and uh, um, it was a four-person show, and taking place in more about different perspectives. At the same mm. event. event, and this, and sort of to go along with that, we took the space and we turned it. We kept turning it to get with each character's perspective, oh. um, rather than. And so every it took place in a few different locations, but every location was sort of on stage represented by the iconic thing of that location. Right. Like the living room had a little very uh, modernish couch arrangement and there was a table not unlike the one we're sitting at um, but this is not the one um that was used for a desk and a dining table um and then the hardest thing about it uh even with all this revolving changing the location of the set that was actually pretty easy the actors were game and it fit very well within the context of the story so They could do it without it seeming just about moving scenery. Which sometimes when you keep moving stuff... It does sort of seem like it's just about moving scenery, and that's
1: always a danger. But I think um, because there were only four people, it only had to be moved four times. Yes. Right? So it wasn't like it was constantly no. shifting. So we got a whole chunk that was one person's point of view, and then it would shift, and then there would be another whole chunk. A whole chunk. Are you going to talk about the bed? I was going to talk about the, the bed. bed. The hardest Tell part me about it. What? The we part. had some really genius beds, too, because the bed in Othello was also genius mm-hmm. as well. The,
4: the hardest was. part about that <laughs> show was, in fact, the bed. Um... I had made it was in the old space, which had, which no space has anymore. But that space had <laughs> lovely giants. Yeah, because sure you, sure yes. you could see yeah. real fights uh, in yes, there. Yeah, right. well. exactly. Um, but we made uh, I made Roman blinds, oversized Roman blinds, which that is uh, the fabric ones that have battens in them that fold up on themselves. Uh, so, so they were. 16 foot tall oversized Roman blinds and they pulled up and behind them was a bed on a wall so that Melissa who had the scene in the bed was actually standing up so that you could see the bed and see the whole scene rather than it being on the ground which in a black box space unless you have the proper rise on the risers no one can ever see that sort of stuff on a bed and you lose so much and because of this we could see everything in that bed and it was crucial because it was actually the pivotal right. scene in the show. If it hadn't been so
1: important... Um, it was also stunningly beautiful. I mean, visually it really beautiful. worked. And uh, yes, when Megan came and worked on that show and it introduced us to the to the joys of Ikea as, uh, <laughs> for, 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 for sets... Um, and the other great thing about that space was that because we had great storage in there, we could reuse things over and over and over again. Now, I think you took a bunch of that for Jeff's photography studio. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. whatever was left was recycled and reused a 100 times. I mean, our average set cost, not counting good people because Megan brought in, you know, a new infusion, was between three dollars and $500 because we had so much stuff that we yeah. could, you know, already yeah. use. Yeah. And so after Megan did that... Um, was the next thing Ted Lange's play? No.
4: No, I think I did, no. I did some yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, you did The Taming of the Shrew, Shrew
1: which yeah, one yeah. the Award. Yeah,
2: which is my first time meeting Megan, the yeah. Shrew. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Which was another um, brilliant production, but difficult, because they started <laughs> rehearsal two days before 9-11. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. wow.
3: Yeah, yeah. and I wasn't so directing
1: fun. that, um, someone else was directing it, and uh, her name was Miriam Eusebio, and she and I had gone and done a school workshop out in Long Island for sixth graders, and they were studying the taming of the shrew and so one of the things that was really interesting was that they were not using the induction scenes at all which establishes the christopher sly story they were just starting as if the story of kate and petruchio is the story and so this whole issue of the way petruchio treats kate and all that so in the workshops that we were doing we we asked these kids about what they felt about uh this is 2001 right or we had done the workshop in 2000 gender roles like did, how did they think that men should you know be the breadwinners and all of that and it was shocking to us that these little sixth graders in 2001 could have given us they were giving us the same answers that you would have gotten from kids in the 40s or 50s right so Miriam and I then went back and did research on the whole induction the, two, the you know the opening scenes and found that there was a, a contemporaneous script the taming of Ushru*, that actually has an ending to that framework and so I was the dramaturg on it, and we put it together, and we set it in um, ostensibly the 30s or the 20s mm-hmm. or 30s, vaudeville, burlesque, mm-hmm. sort of, um, and uh, got a fantastic cast again. And there was a lot of improvisational work that needed to be done because we were actually asking the actors right. to create their own loxies, right. right? We gave them a training in, like, you know, vaudeville, mm-hmm. burlesque, and what a loxie was. And and, um, and two days after the rehearsal, 9 11. 11 happened.
2: Well, I I, I mean, playing Petruchio and that at one of the, I was you know I I knew we were going to get to it. But one of the amazing things about that, which I still talk about um, when when I talk about acting work, it was creating the whole persona of an actor. Who was in a vaudevillian troupe? Right. So Petruchio was the character I was playing, but with the Christopher Sly story, my character's name was Dick Muldrew, Yeah, and I <laughs> created a whole history with him, and it was very funny because all of the other characters had their their characters, and we all had the histories as the traveling troupe, and that filtered into the entire Kate and Petruchio story as
1: it went along. So
2: it was really.
1: We, had, we postponed the, the production dates. We, we yeah. really had to, because yes. it was impossible for the cast to come together and yeah. be funny, right? Mm-hmm. You know, right yeah. after 9-11. Um, but we persevered. We were supposed to, I think, open in early October, and we ended right. up doing it in November.
3: November.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, and it was fantastic. And then Meggan came along, and that was one of the instances where I was saying that we never pretend the audience isn't there, and it's not. It's direct address sometimes, but also it's where we put the audience. Mm-hmm. And so building a hall in a in a mansion where the audience was seated, some, some were in chairs lined up but some weren't some in like armchairs and things that were spread around the or was um, that well was
4: we there? put Christopher Sly in the audience right. on a chaise. So in in the audience was his sort of dais as mm-hmm. it as it were. And so to sort of I believe to sort of blend into the more uh Regular people, <laughs> <laughs> um, the not, that, yeah, not that people that were plants, but right. um, the the audience. I think we sort of did a few mm-hmm. people, and then there were also benches along the walls, right? Yeah, that were upholstered rather than just hard m- metal
1: chairs, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, about the benches, yeah. I knew we had them along the walls, sort of as if they were in the room.
4: But one of the favorite things for me about that show, and I think what got me a job, a a very good job later on, was the fight between Kate and Bianca, because Mm -hmm. I decided that... I had to take their personas that they were creating... Mm -hmm. As the actors. As the actors, as the troop of players, and take that into consideration as I was... Designing what their what what the characters would wear in the play Because it was all coming out of the trunk or we did a lot of um, all this the sound for that show was all improvised by the Mm -hmm. actors as well with slide whistles and coconuts and you know
1: All that sort of stuff and and actually you know Deanna has found the video too (laughs) Yeah, we have to find it. We have to get it. So, we're it. so we were talking about how we do has it. a look of oh, yeah. yeah. yes, joy do. on his face right now. We were
4: talking about how you do the Kate and Bianca fight scene. And I decided that stealing from Sondheim and every stripper has to have a gimmick, mm-hmm. that Bianca was the balloon girl who pops her balloons. Wow. And the fight scene was Kate. She was about to go... Bianca was about to go on stage but the mm. fight scene became Kate popping,
2: popping her the balloons. Popping balloons. I had there was a lot of fun doing yeah. the fight direction for that show. Really wow. wow. um, there was a
1: lot of boustiers was... and a lot of beards. Oh, and yeah. we also <laughs> did because it was we established the troupe of players and then people played multiple roles. So um uh, I'm just, there was a scene where Anna, Deanna... Well, well, was, yeah, Diana played yeah, Anna Mika. It, well, Anemika played, but it was also to their base character uh, Deanna played, um, she was in a, she had, like butterfly wings, oh, and yeah. she <laughs> was sort of like the ballet dancer. <laughs> the ballet dancer yeah, oh, and too she too. ended up playing um, the, father the father and Bunchy's something leg. else too, right? Batista, and, and I think the, she played something else. Oh, and uh, Annamika Farrow played. Not um, Hortensio. Hortensio. Hortensio yes. But Hortensio. also Hortensio. the, Hortensio. the Hortensio. widow Hortensio. at the end or something. So, it, the widow, so, And right. the pedant. Right. And so there was a scene right. where one of them, or maybe it was Monica Asensio. Bianca. Bianca. Yeah, yeah well, she was right. being Bianca, and then she also had to be the petted, and so she would say her lines over, and then she put the beard on and say another line over there. So it was truly magnificent. I mean, <laughs> out of out of uh, out of that great tragedy came this really it incredible really production. It really was, um, and and that's also the kind of thing too that. You know, one of the reasons why Megan is our resident designer today um, is that the idea that it is really a team from top to bottom. And so working with the actors for them to develop their characters and to develop the bits. I mean, it was, it was like we'd asked them to speak Greek when they first came in. Um, they really didn't have a way into creating the Lattes, but we, we found it. Mm-hmm. But then also that for whatever characters they came up with, that had not Meg Ann came up with the, the balloon idea, mm-hmm. then that whole fight thing. I mean, it made, it, made it a cool. whole burlesque sort of striptease thing. And we did the final, Kate's final monologue as a fan dance. <laughs> um at the end. So, you know, continue um, with the burlesque. Yeah yeah. yeah, yeah, just well, I mean it was a total total. Yeah, it was really great. Uh so that was in 2001. Mhm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. November 2000. And then we did Macbeth in the spring of 2002. And that was the first time we had done it. We did it there was a church. Uh on West 4th Street, in Washington Square, Methodist Church, which was lovely, but it was very old and falling apart. And we then did Romeo and Juliet there the next year. And that's now condominiums. So you want to talk about what's happening with space in this city. This, they, they could not raise the money to do the uh, the structural renovation that needed to be done, it was unsafe at the time. But what I liked, because it was a Methodist church, it was mm-hmm. very plain. Mm-hmm. So it was all wooden, you mm-hmm. know, there, there was a cross on the altar, but there wasn't a whole lot of, you right. know, all around And So it was just fantastic and we did two shows there and then, then now it's condominiums. Yeah. So, um, and, and it was great that we could do it there because we then did them for schools. So we had a matinee for school audiences and we could see a hundred kids and there were 150 kids. And, and, and we staged it where the actors moved everywhere. They went around the back of the audience. They, and actually the review for, um, I think it was for Romeo and Juliet said, if it seems like the actors are, um, are everywhere, that well. That's because they are. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that, that was
2: Macbeth, actually. Oh, was it? That, that okay. Was McBeth, yeah. Right. Remember, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: And mm-hmm. so, uh, and you know, and that was uh, that was our our budget speed. We could afford that. And now, thinking mm-hmm. about, I mean, I would love to be able to do something in the armory, for for instance. But the hundreds of thousands of dollars, if not millions, that would cost, have mm-hmm. just always been beyond our reach. And so that was too. So you continue to do. Um, you weren't. Quite a resident designer then. No, because she went away and came back. Yeah, I went
4: on tour. Yeah, Where'd you go? I went. <laughs> I. Why designed, did you leave us? Yeah. Why <laughs> did I <Anna laughs> leave you? Because she gave us a some, reference that she Melody gave me some gave good me.
1: Um, recommendations for people. Of, of,
4: a, of a reference that Melody gave me, uh, yes, work, Workshop Theater does actually get you work. Um, I wound up with a job doing Mab and Mind Dollhouse. Um, which was on tour for ten. I was touring around the world with it yeah. inter- internationally, on and off, for ten years. So, um, and it and then f- culminating in filming it um, for French and German television, and well, theatrical a very limited theatrical release in France, and then um, French and German and European television, and here it's been available on DVD with a few. Um, run a little short
1: Was Peter Dinklage in that too? Because we were just
4: talking about Peter doing a third years ago
1: He 24. was originally
4: cast mm-hmm. as Torvald and then Station Agent Hint, just as we were supposed to open at St. Anne's Warehouse and he kept calling us at rehearsal They have sent me to Italy to do press I will be there, I will be at rehearsal next week mm. They're sending me to such and so to do <laughs> press I will be at rehearsal next week They're sending me and eventually next week and next week and next week wound up being a week before we open. Wow! So at that point in time, Mark Povinelli, who was playing Dr. Torvald, um, who Mark is at this point, I would not quite Peter Dinklage, but very close. uh, He's got a new series on Netflix or one of those shows. The one with the, he plays the cat, and the bad, there's a bunch of bad guys, and he plays a guy in a cat mask. I've seen people talk about I have not seen it. Mm, uh-huh. But anyway, so Mark Rubinelli mm-hmm. took over. Um, so no, Mark was not in it, but Peter, Peter yeah, but we, was originally Peter in Peter was in it. not in it, yeah. <laughs> yes, yeah. Peter was not in it. But um, I got the
1: part because, because of a show that you all had done. Yes, and I can't even remember what that was. Now um, it was one. It was a uh, show that was being done in our space, and all I remember it was Lisa uh, Harrison, Harris, right? Harris. It was the set was literally piles of newspaper everywhere. It was a a hoarder situation, um, and you, did you design that too? No, no that Someone, was so, so I can't remember even how we did that, but I just remember stacking boxes and then like covering them on the outside for it was literally the, our, our, our Black box Theater looked, looked like a garbage dump for the length of that production, wow. um, and uh, uh, and when that was over, at some point later, Lisa asked if, uh, I could recommend a good costume designer at the time, um. So you just did costumes for... I just did yeah. costumes for... So, you know, way back when, when designers were like one thing, and certainly women designers, female designers, it was okay if you were a costume designer. We've just had this, I'm a member of the League of Professional Theatre Women, and Megan is now too, finally. <laughs> yes,
3: finally.
1: But this whole issue about parody for women theatre artists, and, and, and especially for writers, directors, and designers, and this whole discussion about directors who think there's not you know who know a lot of female costume designers but they literally say well i don't know any female set designers or they don't think women design sets and there are a few female lighting designers that are known that that design on broadway but um but now certainly at the off-off Broadway, and I think to some extent the off-Broadway level as well, depending upon what kind of space, that you have, we call Megan our production designer. Because she often will design both the set and the costumes, or she's doing the set and the props and the if we're having projections. Because it's it's, a, it's an aesthetic, it's a dramatic metaphor that the design is as important as anything else and that it is part of the message, it's part of the statement we want to make as a theater company with a particular pr- uh, production that we're doing. And so, um, and it is, and it's, it's like, it goes beyond just designing a particular show, Megan makes like our She's making the birthday cake for our 25th birthday party on June 20th. Everyone should come and try it. There's no cover charge. The information is available on our website. Um, but also gathering materials. You know, we don't have nearly the storage that we used to have, but finding things. If Megan is out doing it or if she does another show and somebody's throwing things away uh, and we can make use of it. And we also did in, when did we start? Megan and I actually helped create a high school in East New York, a public school, called the School for Classics, I think it was 2009 maybe, we did four years there, and created an integrated theater curriculum for 9th, 10th, 11th, and 12th graders. And um, I have never done anything harder in my life. Uh, yeah. Yes, i am sorry, you
4: can't hear my head
0: yeah so Magan, nodding head, but,
4: but,
1: but Megan yeah. got a ton of stuff from the operonics opera where she also works got these huge big lovely arches donated to the school and um you know we we, we did manage to get a lot so it's, it's an ongoing thing it doesn't ever your head's never 100% free of new perspectives is it no but
4: but which the way I like it I'm not sure how <laughs> she feels about it but but then I can also call them borrow stuff so yes that's true um so, yeah. you know, when I needed a nasty old um, fur coat for, for Grey Sky, I was like, do we have a nasty old fur coat? Yeah. And you said, oh, actually, yes, we do. And said, <laughs> 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 so that all works out. And it actually is, you know, it's kind of nice to be able to, because what we used to do with theater is just throw it away at the end. So if you work with different companies and you know who can Like our rehearsal cubes that we get, that we use so much, uh, so often now in our little space Mm -hmm. for readings or small workshop shows, those were from the Bronx Opera because they were just
1: going to throw them away. And actually, the World um, Financial Center just used those too. Lisa called and borrowed them for a couple of days. Yeah. So our stuff goes to the heights and to the depths. (laughs) (laughs) East New York, the World Financial Center. Um, So...
4: You know, it's good to be able to recycle stuff now too, although I do remember when I was in graduate school and the director asked us to build her set out of entirely, in an entirely green thing, mm-hmm. and we laughed at her because um, there was no way to do it. It was a, A, it was a completely strange concept that you would even try to do a set out of something completely green at that point in time, because we were still using styrofoam and So much stuff like that um, to create rocks or trees or whatever. We still do. Now, however, there has been a movement to be more conscientious of all of that stuff. Um, And the off-off Broadway community is very good about, well, I have those stairs, so you don't need those stairs. Don't build more stairs. Or, you know, Mm -hmm. Melody, I like go, I need a set of five stairs. Find me five stairs, and she'll type it up on the off-off Broadway dish, and, and then we'll be going to pick up staircases somewhere. <laughs> right. um, yeah. So um, we try to do what we can environmentally, too, and it makes it easier.
1: Yeah, it makes it easier and, uh, and cheaper in the long run. And nobody
4: has the stores that they used to have.
1: Right. Um, hmm. We actually now have an actual
4: storage space on in Queens. And all the seat really, jobs yeah. have moved out of the city. And- yeah, that's true. All yeah, the lighting rental yeah, places yeah. are
1: out of the city now, too, as well. Right. So yes, because no one can afford to pay for the real estate. You can't actually have your lighting store right. in in mm-hmm. Manhattan anymore, right?
0: That's, that's a reoccurring theme of ours. Even
1: the it's warehouses, awesome. right? On 11th and 12th oh, Avenue, yeah. where some of the lighting places were, these mm-hmm. old warehouse buildings are now prime real estate, either for mm-hmm. condos or yeah. for fancy offices. All the designers are over Kenneth Cole and the rest of them. Um, Costume plush in City, right. <clears> Rosebrand <throat> <throat> City. And Rosebrand oh. used, and, and they all used to be in the neighborhood, right? Rosebrand was on 42nd Street or 40th or something, right? Uh, That's all fabric and, and, and mm-hmm. draperies, all theatrical curtains and things like that. So um, where are we up to now? We're up to 2000, and we skipped oh, to 2009 yeah. with, the, yeah. with the school.
4: Didn't mean
1: to, but- No, 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 I yeah. did. I brought it up to that. <laughs> uh, did so you back to- What? To what?
2: Um, just before moving here, 04 or 05?
1: Well, I don't remember, what did we do in 04 and 05? Um,
2: I think we were talking about that, thinking at that point it was just just trying to rent the theater out, mostly. No,
1: we did We did in 05, we, in, in the fall of 04, we did... We did, did
4: a we did Was that in
1: 04 in the spring? Yeah. Yeah, I think it was in the spring of 04. 04. And then we did Melissa Maxwell's play, Unrequited Love. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the spring and in the fall we did the New York we actually might even have been US premiere of an Argentinian playwright um, called The Visit Mm -hmm. and very it was really interesting Um, Ricardo Monti is the playwright and he's very well known. This is the other thing you know these incredible playwrights known around the world except for in the United States you know Mm -hmm. because they're not but they're the theater not of the absurd but really more sort of theater of the grotesque fascinating script um, and it was the first English language uh, production of that play that was done in the United States um, and we did a, a women's work production was the very last thing we did in the fall of 2005
4: when was mm-hmm. Lemon Ring that was in the old space that
1: was 04 yeah oh yeah so with Ted Lange who was Isaac on the love Boat, <laughs> yeah. for those who know he was. Yeah. He wrote a play called Lemon Ring Facade and Megan mm-hmm. designed that too um and uh I don't think we did, but we didn't do any shakes. We did a, a Midsummer Dream was the last right. big right. Shakespeare Very production Shakespeare. we did. Because then in two thousand and five, we actually did the parks tour of right. Romeo and Juliet. We did a tour of city parks with Romeo and Juliet, wow. and uh,
4: yeah, the Midsummer we had a lot of lead time on. Yes, which was wonderful because we did that all uh, inspired Indi- India, um, and and with a lot of saris and sari fabric and. And the horse was like the Indian, uh, the horse, the, the asses had was had all that sort of Indian-inspired um, decoration on it. And because we had the lead time, I actually ordered the costumes from India. Wow. So that we could afford them in bulk from India. I was like, okay, send me 20 assorted saris. And, and um, yeah. Or else we nice. could never have afforded to do that show. Mm-hmm. Um, fortunately, we knew what we wanted to do with it yes. early enough yeah. mm-hmm. that, like two or three months in advance, before rehearsals even started, mm-hmm. so we could do that. We did do
2: the, I mean, the Shakespeare Made Simple. We also, we had oh yeah, I mean, we did that. that. We and
1: did all this. up because we actually like continued that. it into the the right. 2006 when we moved here. Right. Our our series Shakespeare Made Simple. Uh, leading Ladies, Fools, and Villains, and then the Shakespeare vaudeville uh, that we would do for schools. And actually 2004 was the first time we did the Shakespeare vaudeville, because I had been teaching at LIU then, and um, we created that. Dana Gonzalez, one of our company members, uh, was my assistant director and choreographer, and she created uh, the whole opening and closing sequence, which were set mm-hmm. to um, brush up your Shakespeare, Cole Porters. So we did that with the kids at LIU, and then realized it was a great little set piece. It's an hour long. Um, we did that in 2007. I mean, we did that into yeah, we did that. Yeah, we did it out three. at LIU but the, again. With but this. I'm
2: thinking that, uh, the the shortened versions of R and J and oh yes, at, at the did, old space, right? Old yeah, space. we did
1: 75 minute versions and mm-hmm. and brought the schools to us there because we could because yeah. we could actually fit a hundred kids in that studio yeah. when we didn't have a set. Yes, and so the fools, leading ladies, and villains, you know, we would have a hundred kids and we and, you know we'd leave there'd be like a postage stamp of playing space but because it was all four corners were open and because they were dealing with the kids Mm -hmm. and there wasn't really a set it didn't matter and so that that got us our Shakespeare Made Simple program got us our first uh, funding from the Department of Cultural Affairs in 2000 and I want to say 2003 but I think it was earlier because it was along the time we were doing Shrew. Right. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah.
3: The
4: school's we got this. Yeah, 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 yeah. And, uh,
1: and the program sure. officer then at the time came and sat and, and watched a, a Shakespeare's Leading Ladies. We had one school from Brooklyn um, that would come to every show we did, Fool's Leading Ladies and Villains, and the teacher, Mr. Golden, Carrie mm-hmm. Golden, um, would bring his classes to everyone for years. And I asked him one time, I said, don't you ever get bored with this? I'm like, you've seen these...
3: It was a million times.
1: And he said, no, that he always loved watching his students interact with the actors and discovered it. And, um, but the, the, the Department of Cultural Affairs program officer at the time said that we seem to have discovered the magic formula to making the language completely understandable mm-hmm. um, and to make the situation clear and all of that. So he was very impressed right because he did came he came to Macbeth at the church yeah. so so I think it was 2001 that we got the funding but from that and from dealing with kids right mm-hmm. and that the whole design of that came from my you know starting my my theatrical career at the age of eight in a professional children's theater company in my hometown in central New York and so I went okay what what did we do well we always said there was always a chase scene through the kids as the audience right so dealing with the kids that, it was the, the, that was actually what we started New Prospectus with, by the way, going all the way back to my first thing, which is that we were founded in 91 and officially incorporated in 92, was that I had been asked if I could do some Shakespeare for the schools by an arts and ed, a big, one of these places that, um, Books, you know, they're like a booking agent. <clears throat> so I was like, I, I'm not going to direct a Shakespeare production, and I had also never directed a Shakespeare production in 1991, a whole production, I admit that now, <laughs> um, to, on the off chance that some kids would want to come, with, like a school would want to come. So I came up with this idea of the fools, leading ladies and villains, Um, and also you know serendipitously my entire working life outside of the theater in New York has been in some form of education Mm -hmm. It was never my plan so I was working I had worked at Bank Street College of Education first in the admissions office then for eight years I was with uh, an educational research firm so I thought about you know one of the major things in terms of of affirmative action and also getting buy-in is to have people on stage that look like your audience so with the public schools To have the multiracial casting was critical and also to not ignore them, to go in their little faces and sit in their laps and do all of that. And by picking Fools, Leading Ladies and Villains, they were archetypal characters that we could then create study guides and supplemental materials to go with it. Uh, So I was asked to do that and created that in 1991. In the fall of 91, I gathered some folks together, and we did those performances, we did them for the schools, and that became the formula for all of New Perspectives' work. So when we were incorporated in 92, that was really the foundation, was that we would never pretend the audience wasn't there, we would always have a diverse casting, and uh that we want the the educational component so even for things for adults you've seen where we do our playbills there's always a a, a director's note in our work that we've been now doing since about 2009 the whole 50 50 and 2020 parody for women theater artists um our on her shoulders reading series that there's a scholarly dramaturgical essay in there as well as a playwright's bio um in other stuff that we do because it's we really want our audiences young or old um to have a window into the thinking behind what we do. So what Meg, the Anne description, Meg description of how she came up with the costumes for the characters in Shrew, is part of the process of, it's the whole message, it's the whole impact of the, right? So it's not like it just comes out of nowhere, right? That there's really a lot invested and a lot of thinking behind what it is that we're always trying to say, regardless of what the show is that we're doing. And whether it's a kid's show or whether it's... A full-length yeah. Shakespeare production. So,
2: which new perspectives needs to do? What? Which new perspectives needs to do?
1: We need to do what? A full Shakespeare. Oh yeah, we need the money. We need. If we could find an affordable space. We could do it tomorrow. Mm-hmm. But um, space, 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 space. Yes, it comes back to space. Well, it does, yeah. and we started as we started, started with, is, with space. Yeah, yeah. we started yeah. With, We're with space. still and with space. And, <laughs> yep. um, so. And now we're up to twenty sixteen. We are, and we've gone international now. So that's right. You yeah, had a recent trip. What?
0: You had a recent trip?
1: We did in March, and we went. I was there. We went in August yeah, with August. another play, um, and we would go again. But so one of the things that's really interesting, because I also started in addition to space, was the issue of our mission and how there isn't really a whole lot of people interested in supporting it financially, and um, trying to figure that out for years. Uh, a friend of the company in looking at our history that's all over our walls really sort of summed it all up and he said the problem here is that the people New Perspectives is serving are serving uh, are not in a position to financially support the company and whether that is our artists or whether it is the audiences that we predominantly serve and that's unlike other Uh, established off-off-Broadway companies or off-Broadway where they have a subscriber base or they have people that they're serving, they have some named recognition, they've got some celebrities, so there's people that want to get involved either on their board or be big contributors because there's some, you know, uh, there's some, I don't know what the aspect of it is, it's a little, little more cachet to it. Now our work is as good or better than 99% of what anybody else does out there, but we don't have a, a movie star doing it. Um, and also we don't have people coming along and directing something who have no business directing, you know, a Shakespeare play and uh, uh, or putting so, uh, somebody because they're a name in a role that they're not really right for or that doesn't suit the vision of what it is that we're trying to do with the work. Um, and so... I was actually really very depressed about all of this, because after doing 15 years at the old space, where we really were kind of on the cusp of, of being known. I mean, we were always known. We're very well known in the Off Broadway community. We're actually very well known in the theater community, in New York. So that's that's the um, paradox of New Perspectives, is that everyone knows who who we are. We have a great reputation for quality work. Uh, we're well known for our work in terms of developing plays by women and we you know our diversity. Uh, and people say all the time how much they love us, and but nobody will give us a substantial amount of money to really, you know, sort of break through that barrier. And, uh, uh, and that's when I realized, you know, what we say our mission is, people do admire the mission, but they don't want to fund it. So, uh, in 2014 I had the great fortune of meeting Patricia Ariza, who runs um, the Colombian Theatre Corporation in Bogota, uh, including the Teatro de la Candelaria, which just celebrated 50 years, and their mission is theater for social justice and mm-hmm. political change, and they have been doing it under gunfire for a long, long time, yes, they uh, and that even, even, um,
0: literal gunfire, Literal, gunfire, yes. literal yes. Uh, Patricia literal. wore a bulletproof
1: yeah. vest for a long time. Um, and uh, even now with the, with the trade deal with the United States and the, quote, peace accords, there's still so much violence. But when I met her, I was very, you know, she came to New York. I, I was part of a, an award that she was given. And um, so we were then invited, uh, a couple of us, to go to Bogota in April of 2015 for uh, the World Summit for Art, Art and Culture for Peace in Colombia. And one of the things that Patricia always said is that if there's peace in Colombia, there will be peace in the entire Central and South American region because it all flows from there.
3: Yeah.
1: Uh, and it was just, it was a serious eye-opener um, to go down there. And they, they have a, she has a small black box theater that is very reminiscent of our old space, although so they have permanent seating on one side. Um, and then the Candelaria, and these are, colonial Spanish colonial buildings you know that are like 500-year-old buildings that they are doing theater yeah it's amazing Mm
3: -hmm. Um,
1: but my faith in what we are doing and and not literally what we're doing day to day uh, but my faith in the reason why we're doing it the purpose of what we do was really restored Mm -hmm. because they have lost people. They've been gunned down. They've been, you know, mm-hmm. they've been threatened. They have lived hand to mouth, and they and they they have really and truly changed the political dynamics in Bogota, um, somewhat in the larger country. Because Patricia is on the team that is that is doing the peace negotiations in Cuba. She was invited to be on that. Um, but bringing people in off the streets and creating theater with them. Um, the prostitutes, the, the victims of the violence from all sides, coming and letting them tell their stories and working with professional actors and mm-hmm. developing pieces. Um, so I went in April, and then we were invited to do the uh, Women on Stage for Peace Festival that she started 24 years ago uh, in last August. And so we took a play, Jihad, which is now called Jihad the Play so that uh, there's no confusion about what we're talking about <laughs> uh, by Anne Chamberlain and it is a fictional meeting between Richard the Lionheart and Saladin in the Third Crusade and it won a, another Off-of-Road Review award which we did we did that play 20 years ago and so dusting that off to, to take it to Bogota it was exciting and yet really depressing that it was still so even more relevant now than it was when we did it 20 mm. years ago. Um, So we did it there, and now we're trying to do that as an off broadway production, which we have never, ever, ever done before. So we have a producing consultant. So anyone who wants to give us money, know more about that, they can um, contact us. Uh, And then we were invited to go back in um, just March. We did a retrospective of uh, short plays from our women's short play lab, and two of those plays we took down there. And that is a, it's kind of like The Fringe. It's only every other year. But it was created, Patricia created it in opposition to the Ibero American Theater Festival, which is apparently the largest theater festival in the world. Yes. There, it is. I reset that. And we it happens it happens every two years. Saying. And the criticism is that it's very commercial, it's very yeah. spectacle oriented, and it's very expensive. And we actually heard this from a number of people that, that when we were down there in, in March, that they could get six tickets to the alternative festival for each ticket they could they could buy at the Ibero American Theater Festival. Yeah. Uh, so we did two two of the short plays that we have done here, and it was wildly successful. One was in English with supertitles, and the other was a Spanish writer, and we had cast Latina actresses to do it here, and so we were just able to translate that. Um, we were sold out. There were people sitting on the floor. It was really, really amazing. And then I was asked to participate in a panel the next morning on theater and violence, mm-hmm. and you, you know how violence either... Either how you talk about it through theater, or how, what the impact of it is on, or how you use violence in theater, so that was, it was really very, very gratifying. Um, and so, uh, I, this is my, my, uh, my sister says that's my retirement destination, Bogota. <laughs> someone said, said hi to me on the street, who I had no idea who they were, and I went, I'm famous in Bogota at least, but <laughs> um, not in New York. So
0: and that brings us to 2016 it does and our mm-hmm. 25th year
1: yep june uh, 20th june 20 and it's uh Oloonies is the uh, bar restaurant it's on 50th street between 8th and broadway and 6:30 to 9 30 we have a whole back area to ourselves there's no cover charge um we have happy hour drink prices for the cash mm-hmm. bar and we're gonna have lots of fun and games with New Perspectives trivia and some door prizes and raffle prizes and we just really really want to have a good time and have as many people who've come through the doors of New Perspectives which by now is in the thousands of Mm -hmm. actors, writers, directors, designers, um, audience thousands and thousands I mean if we count audiences we count all the work we did in the schools and we used to do a, an outdoor Shakespeare fair <laughs> at um, Riverbank State Park mm-hmm. remember and yeah. that I mean thousands we <laughs> would have to say 40 or 50 thousand people have have had experienced eight new perspectives production in some fashion in 25 years yeah. uh, and uh, so we want as many of them to crowd into Olunis as can possibly fit
0: and where can they go for more information to
1: our website, mm-hmm. www.nptnyc.org. Oh, right. Or they can call or they can stop by. That's the beauty of having a, uh, a storefront now, is that the neighbors can just drop in.
0: That's very true. And you're open. what are your open office
1: hours? We're usually hours? here between 11 and 6. Now, we might 6. be here earlier and we might be here later. But in terms of mm-hmm. sort of office hours, it's usually 11 to 6, Monday through Friday.
4: And we're also doing in a couple of weeks. A new, um, a new thing with the puppet shows. Did you talk about the puppet no, shows at all? No. Oh, yeah, was, That'll be for the
1: next one. Remember, yeah, we yes. did say we have to have more than one session yes, for the right. New Perspective's yeah, History. Yeah, but in a
4: couple of weeks, you're doing a family... Yeah, the family bad, bad, things, birthday, bad Birthday, June
1: 4th and June 11th. Two performances each day. Those are Saturdays. At 11 a.m. and 2 p.m. And that includes family time, so your kids get to see the show and then they get to make a sock puppet and act it in the, and go behind the puppet theater and Mm -hmm. and, and get tips from the actors and do their, and take their sock puppet home with them. That sounds fun. Yeah.
0: And interactive.
1: And interactive and educational. And educational. Because it comes with a study guide. Yes, it does. Yes, the parents can take a study guide home.
0: That's great. And I think we've covered all we can for today. Yes. (laughs) I'd like to thank Melody. Ray and Megan For uh, You know uh, Recapping the history Of New Perspectives Theater Company And
2: Thank you for Thank Rachel you for for th-
4: yes, yes for having us.
1: And For being our host
0: Thank you Thank you It's my first time I, I, I'm glad I shared My first time With, with all three yes. of you Yes
1: With the family As it were Yeah Incest is best That is not a way To end the show
0: yeah, I think that's a great way To end <laughs> I think it's <laughs>
4: Sounds like Game of Thrones. It's ah. <laughs> a very popular show. <laughs> and
0: thank you, and good night.
4: Good night. <laughs>